All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we honor you and we bless you this day. God, we thank you for your mighty power that indeed you are the king of the universe, that, Lord, you reign from your throne. Lord, that you rule over your creation with a mighty providence and that you are bringing all things, Lord, to the end that you have designed for them. We thank you. We thank you that you have been so gracious to give us life, to give us breath, and to give us all that you give us, God. We praise you, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you provide for us every day our daily bread. God, that you give us shelter and clothing, and, and Lord, even dear loved ones. And, and Father, we just thank you for your goodness that you express to us every day in so many ways. We thank you, Lord, for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the precious blood that was shed there to redeem us from our sins. We thank you. Lord, we are exceedingly grateful for all that you have done. And we thank you. We ask, Lord, as we look into the scripture today to understand even better what you have done for us at the cross I pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart and give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, God. Lord, that we might understand all that you have accomplished in Christ for us. And God, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts with these truths and that they would become indeed precious treasures to us. Oh Lord, may we esteem the cross of our Lord Jesus higher than any other thing that we have. Oh Lord, may you the Christ upon the cross, be our exceeding great reward. And Lord, may we live our lives in a way that honors you, in a way that ascribes worth to you. And so, Lord, we pray for strength and we pray for faith. Help us, God, even in our unbelief. Help us, we pray. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so with that, we're uh, back in our study on the work of Jesus Christ. So we spent uh, many months looking at the person of our Lord Jesus, and now we're, we uh, have been talking about the work of Christ. And so we have defined the work of Christ on the cross as the atonement. And when we use the word atonement in this sense, what we're talking about is the whole scope of Christ's saving work. Everything that he has accomplished at the cross, we've kind of put underneath this banner of the atonement. And we've been talking about uh, what it means. And so we, we uh, spent some time talking about biblical words that are used to describe uh, the atonement. And then we talked about biblical ideas or concepts that God has used to try to express to us what it means. And we went through a, a section defining the atonement. Of course, that was on your handouts, lessons number 30, page number 39 and following. Then we talked about the necessity of the atonement and why the atonement was necessary. And, and uh, not only was it necessary because of sin for man to be reconciled to God, but the exact and very means that God used to make atonement were absolutely necessary that they come about the way they came about. Of course, we spent 
quite a bit of time talking about that in the necessity of the atonement. And then the last two weeks, we spent time <clears throat> looking at the nature of the atonement and talking about how the Bible describes the atonement to us and what it means to us. And, <clears throat> and so that we said these things about the nature of the atonement, that, um, that the, the, the main thing about the atonement in its nature is that it's grounded in God's sovereign decree. So that, in other words, God planned the atonement of Christ from before the creation of the world. And as we have said, even in the beginning of our study on the atonement, it was for this very purpose that God made the creation. So that he could manifest his love on the cross through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that the events on the cross and the atonement of Christ become the very focal point of all of human history. So that we have said things like, it's the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world. That Jesus died upon the cross. Because in this, God's eternal purposes in Christ were fulfilled. And so when we look at the atonement, we have to understand, this is the very center, the very ground of everything that God has decreed that he would do from all eternity. So when God planned his world, when he planned the existence of of um, of the universe. It was all focused and centered around what he was going to do at the cross with our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, we, as we have stated many times, that history in the, in the biblical sense is redemptive. It's redemptive history. It's God's plan of redemption that's being worked out through the ages of mankind. And that can be seen all the way back from the very first pages of Genesis where we have the proto-evangel and of course we talked about that earlier in the year and and how God was always promising to his people down through the ages that he was going to send the one the Christ the anointed one the Messiah to come and 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 that in the fullness of time Jesus did in fact come and give his life as a sacrifice for sins and fulfill the purposes of God and that now what God is doing in the, in the plan of redemption is he's applying it. We are in the stage of history what, what, that we describe as the application of redemption. So that now what's happening is God is saving people as he calls them out of darkness into his beloved church and, and becoming believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. And through that, they receive redemption. So that through faith, we become partakers of all that God has done in Christ. And so all of these things happen by the decree of God. They happen by God's eternal plan that, so that this is, this is the consummation of the ages, the fact that Jesus died on the cross. That's why the scripture says in Galatians that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So that when, the full, when time was full, when it was just the right time, God sent the Lord Jesus to die on the cross to redeem mankind from his sins. And so that we also said about the nature of the atonement that the death of Christ upon the cross was motivated by God's free and sovereign love. So that the atonement is motivated in the love of God. And this is clearly seen in the scripture, uh, the most familiar verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but would have eternal life. 
Amen? And so that, that the atonement is motivated by the love of God. And, 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 but that love is not constrained by anything that God has done in the creation, but rather he expresses it freely. And so that the scripture says in Ephesians that he chose us in him from the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, it says, which he freely bestowed upon us. God was not constrained to show us love. We were rebel sinners. And while we were yet enemies, Paul writes in Romans, Christ died for us. Amen? Amen. So that God's expression of his love at the cross was something he did freely out of his nature. And, and of course, he, he has that right because he's the sovereign. It's his creation. He's in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Amen? Amen? And so God's love is not only free, it's sovereign. He bestows it on whomever he wishes. And no one can say to him, what are you doing? For God owes no man a debt. Amen? Who should God repay? Amen? So his love is free and it's sovereign. And so uh, the cross is something that's, that's, that's a, a, an expression of the very nature of God. And he's done this freely. This is how he has chosen to manifest his love to a creation which he made, which he sustains. Amen? glorious truth about God. But then we started talking about in this discussion of the nature of the atonement, all the different pictures that the Bible paints of what the atonement is. And so that the Bible uh, paints it, if you will, as a sacrifice. And we, t- we said that uh, the, the Old Testament sacrifice was a, a portrait of the atonement. And so that blood sacrifices in the Old Testament were all pointing toward Christ. And that in Christ, there was a transaction that gets made. Whereby Christ, it says, died for us. He died vicariously. And that this was a very personal thing. And that more than that, he was a substitute. He died in our place instead of us. And so that this term or this idea or this picture that the scripture paints of a sacrifice is one that is a substitute in the place of every one of us personally as sinners. So that Christ is not just the substitute, he's a vicarious substitute. He died for us, the scripture says. Christ died for me. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? And there he speaks of the Son of God who gave himself for me, says Paul. Who loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says. You see, Jesus is Paul's personal sacrifice to make him right with God. And so he is with every believer. Amen? Amen. So the, the scripture paints this picture of a sacrifice to die in the place of and, and personally for each one of us. Okay? And that's what the term vicarious means. But that uh, more than this, we talked about the fact that Christ's death achieved a greater purpose than that of the Old Testament sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifice 
it says in the, in the scripture in the New Testament, it was impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to make atonement for sins. But rather, it says of Jesus in Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. So the idea here is is that what was happening under the Levitical priesthood and in the tabernacle was just a type and a shadow and a representation of the true tabernacle of God in heaven. And that Christ himself went to heaven and there offered his own blood to sprinkle the mercy seat in heaven where God is. Okay? And so that he actually did really atone in the presence of God. Amen? And this, the scripture says, was once for all, and that he obtained an eternal redemption. So that he doesn't, like the former priests, have to offer his blood again and again and again and again. Okay? And if you know anything about the Catholic Mass, okay, you understand that in transubstantiation, which is the Catholic view of the Mass, that whenever they celebrate the Mass, they are, in essence, as they describe, sacrificing the Lamb of God again and again and again and again. So that in the Catholic Mass, a Roman Catholic Mass, it is not a symbol of what Christ did, but it is, in fact, again, the sacrifice over and over. Whereas the scripture paints a very different picture in Hebrews 10. It says, And every priest who stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And so the point is is that Jesus offered his, his blood as a sacrifice one time, once, the scripture says, for all. And it was final. It was complete. It was sufficient to atone for sins. And that's why the scripture says he offered himself, Hebrews 10:12, one sacrifice for sins for all time and sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, he finished. He finished his work. And so that the scripture says again, just after that in Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who were sanctified. And so that what that means is through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who he cleanses are perfected forever in the sight of God. This is what he meant when he said on the cross to Telestai, it is finished. The work is completed. The price for redemption was fully paid. Amen? Amen. Which brings us to uh, uh, this other biblical picture we've been looking at, which is that of of, uh, propitiation. Right? So, propitiation, the scripture says, is an appeasement of the wrath of God or a satisfaction of God's wrath towards sin. And sinners. Right? So, the natural response of a holy God towards sin is wrath. 
Amen? And this is part of God's nature. It's not something He chooses to do. It is something that He does by His nature. God cannot respond to sin in any other way other than wrath. Okay? And, and so because God is just, He must have a way to atone for sin. Okay? Which is why we talk about the absolute necessity of the atonement in the way that it happened. Right? And, uh, but the point is, is that, so, so that what Christ has done is, He has propitiated the wrath of God towards sin. And, and so that he is a satisfaction. And this is, of course, is a biblical picture. And this is what the Bible says about it. It says that, um, that, uh, in, in 1st John, the scripture says that Jesus himself is the atonement. 1st John 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus himself is the propitiation. Remember we talked about the fact that this means that it's he is the atoning victim. Jesus himself is the actual sacrifice on the altar, dying for my sins and for your sins. He himself is the propitiation. He himself is the satisfaction of the wrath of God towards sin. So that God is fully satisfied with the death of Jesus Christ. Of course, we talked about this at great length. But that because of this truth, that Jesus died as a sacrifice, vicariously, as a substitute in my place, he therefore satisfied the wrath of God. And so that in regards to me, he has expiated my guilt. He's taken away my guilt because he's paid the full price for it. So then on this basis, God can declare me righteous. Amen? And this, of course, is what justification is. And we're going to talk about that at great length a little later in the lesson. But the point is is simply this, that because the wrath of God has been fully satisfied in the death of Christ... My guilt no longer remains before God. And as we've said, and as, as pictured in the scripture, the cup of the wrath of God has been drunk to its dregs and there's no drops left for me. Amen? Amen? And so God is either fully satisfied in the death of Christ for my sins, or he's not. Okay? And this, again, speaks to the sufficiency of the atonement. Is the atonement sufficient? Right? Is it sufficient to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God? And of course, this is the gospel message, is it not? Is this not the thing that Paul explains in great detail in Romans 3? That through our Lord Jesus Christ, that God is propitiated? Right? That God himself offered Christ as a propitiation? Right? For the display of his justice, the scripture says? Absolutely. And so this has removed our guilt. And so this is another biblical picture. That, that the cross is expiatory. It's an expiation. It's a removal of guilt. Okay? And uh, <clears throat> therefore, in talking about the nature of the atonement, we see all these different pictures that the scripture has. And of course, all of this is spoken of in the scripture as redemption. And as we've said, redemption is a picture that deals with accounting. 
It's a picture that deals with a price that's demanded by justice. And the scripture says that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. That we were held captive by the captor, sin, and wrath, and justice. But that Jesus paid the price of a ransom for our souls. And of course we know what happens when a ransom gets paid, right? The captive goes free. Amen? And that's another biblical picture of the atonement. And what Christ has done. So Christ has either fully satisfied that price demanded by God's justice, or he has not. And if he has, then God's justice has been met. Amen? And of course it has. Amen? And of course we've been looking at these scriptures uh, for some time now. So that the scripture says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of of the law. Okay? And this is where we ended last week saying that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Okay? Now understand that the Christian has a relation to the law of God. And that that relation to the law of God is very specific in the New Testament. So that Christ has redeemed us from the penal sanctions, is what we've said about the law. The penalty. That word penal is the word, word, word penalty. Okay? The penalty of the law has been fully paid by Christ. And that's why the scripture says we've been redeemed. Redeemed from what? From the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? If anybody doesn't continue to do all that is written therein, he shall die. He shall die. Right? Which is the very thing that God has warned man about ever since man has existed. Amen? In the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Amen? And the whole thing that's been going on ever since then, the devil comes along and he says, now, wait a minute. Now, has God really said, you shall surely die? Right? And he's calling into question the word of God. He's attacking the word of God. Right? So that we would not believe the word of God. Amen? And so even to this day, man is stiff-necked and stubborn. So that the death rate is one per person and has been for 6,000 years and we still don't believe God. Right? So we're seeking through our own means all these fancy ways to overcome death. As if we had the keys to hell and death ourselves. Amen? When the Lord Jesus himself shows up, God himself shows up, right? <laughs> Goes to the great length of the cross to redeem us from our sins, and then tells us, look, I have the keys to death and hell. So that he proves it by raising himself from the dead. Amen? And as he told uh, Lazarus and the poor man, right? Even if somebody comes back from the dead, they still won't believe. Amen? So that God has to open our eyes in redemption before we can even embrace the work of God. 
Amen? Amen? Because the natural man does not accept the things of God. They are foolishness to him. Indeed, he cannot. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. Right? 1 Corinthians 2.14. So, the point is, is that the death of Jesus redeemed us. It paid a price. What was the price? The price was the curse of the law. And because Jesus was not dying for his own sin, okay, he had a perfect life. Therefore, he could pay the price demanded by sin in its totality. That's why the scripture says of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but what? For the sins of the whole world. Why? Because Christ's life is holy. It is infinitely pure. And the debt which was paid is sufficient to cover the debt of all sin throughout all the ages. Okay? But of course we know it becomes proficient only for those who by faith trust in Christ. Amen? Okay, so... Lastly, this, this last part about the nature of the atonement that we want to cover is the fact that Christ has redeemed us from the very power of sin. So that sin no longer has to rule over us. It no longer has to have dominion over us because he has broken its power. Okay? How does he do that? Many, many ways. <laughs> right? Not the least to mention that when you sin now as a believer... God no longer counts your sin against you. You know, there's this whole discussion I've, I've heard recently about, uh, I forget who it was that was talking to me about a controversy uh, where someone was questioning whether or not future sins were forgiven. And, and um, I, I said, if future sins aren't forgiven, we're still in our sins. Because we commit future sins every day we live, do we not? Yeah. Amen. So, you know, again, this is another attack on the sufficiency of the atonement. Is the atonement sufficient to cover sin or isn't it? Are you with me? Or what, what must happen? Every time I sin, do I got to get on my knees and walk to Santa Fe? Every time I sin, do I, do I have to do, perform some kind of penitence so that I'll be saved? Right? So that people who typically believe that kind of doctrine are wondering, what happens when I'm in the movie theater at an R-rated movie and Jesus returns? <laughs> right? I mean, just the silly things that people come up with because they don't understand rightly what God has done in Christ. What in the world are you doing in an R-rated movie, you fool? Are you with me? Shall you cast your eyes upon the vile thing? How much do you love the cross? Do you honor it? Why would you fill your mind with such filth? Are you with me? Okay, so the point is just that uh, I didn't make a law there, so don't go <laughs> accusing me of being a legalist. I was talking about what we value. You know, if you value murder and adultery and wickedness and guys running through the streets with guns in both hands blowing people's heads off, is that the kind of thing you value? I don't know about you, but I know about me. I hate that. I was saved from that. And I'm fleeing from it Amen. by God's power and His good grace. Amen? 
Well, so, sorry if I stepped on a few toes, but I'm really not sorry. (laughs) It's all about what you value. Do you value the blood? Is it precious? Why did Jesus die? Shall we now be entertained by those things that brought about his death? Well then, the scripture says that through Christ's redemption, we have been redeemed from the very power of sin. And that this power is exceedingly great. It says in Titus 2.14, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. One of the purposes of Christ's atonement was to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Amen? Are you with me? Through Christ's redemption, the consequences of the devil's temptations to sin have been fully paid, and he can no longer accuse and threaten us with the holy demands of the law because we have been set free from these now to honor and serve God, not by the motivation of fear, but, but, but of thanksgiving and devoted love. In this redemption, Christ destroyed the devil's work. Here's the deal. When you sin as a believer, you no longer incur the penalty of death. Are you with me? So that you're set free. You're set free from the curse of the law. You've been redeemed. The devil cannot come along and say to you again, You sinner, you shall surely die. You've angered God. You're guilty. No, what do we do? We plead the cross. Amen? You can't condemn me, you devil. Because the Bible says there's now and therefore no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has what? Set me free from the law of sin and death. You can no longer be condemned to death if you are in Christ. It is finished. It is over. Sin has been disarmed. The wrath of God has been disarmed. It's almost too good to believe. That's why it takes faith. (laughs) Amen? It's a glorious truth. Now, don't think for one minute that I'm preaching about a license for immorality. You know that's not true. Okay? And if that's your thought, you probably need to get saved. Right? But that what God has done in Christ is so glorious. It's so beautiful. It's so majestic. It is such a treasure to us that we have turned our back on sin. Amen? And isn't that how we got saved? God just showed us the beauty of the cross and of the Savior who died there. Isn't that the crux of the whole matter? Well, it says in Hebrews 2, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That means Jesus became a man. That through death... He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You hear what the writer's saying? He's saying that we have been set free from death. 
so that we no longer have to fear death. Why? Because death, eternal separation from God, has been removed from those of us who are in Christ Jesus. This makes the devil powerless to cause fear any longer. We don't fear him. Amen? Now we fear God. Amen? Are you with me? Now we're not afraid of the devil. Instead, we revere God. We honor God. We give him his proper place. Amen? Okay. 1 John 3.8 says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who lives in an ongoing practice of sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Amen? And of course, John is really clear about this practical sanctification. And here, John's point is, saving faith produces obedience in the life of a believer. Amen? And of course, I'm not going to expound on this here. I am going to expound on this in great detail when we get to the gospel, which is coming up in, the, in, in, in a few weeks. But uh, uh, the point is, is that saving faith produces good works. Okay? And of course, this is the point of many passages in the New Testament, but, uh, and especially in the book of 1 John. Right? John says, if you're in Christ, you don't live in an ongoing practice of sin. But instead... Instead, what? Jesus appeared to do what? To destroy the work of the devil. To break the chains that bind us in sin. Amen? So that we've been redeemed from the power of sin. Well, so then, having talked about the nature of the atonement in in those ways and looking at, at the various pictures in Scripture, and you know there's more. I mean, this is such a comprehensive thing in the Scripture, it's unbelievable to try and comprehend all that the scripture has said that has been done for us in Christ. Okay? We've really just looked at it quite briefly. But in ending on this discussion about the atonement, I want to talk about two things. One is the sufficiency of the atonement. How sufficient is it? And then number two, what are the results and the benefits that come from it? Okay? And we should never forget this when we talk about the gospel. And I I know it's not really a challenge in today's day and age. In fact, we've redefined the gospel these days in this sense, where all we want to do is tell people about the results and the benefits of it, right? Without dealing with the central issue that's at stake in the gospel, which is the sin problem, amen, Amen? which is what we just spent eight weeks talking about. All of this stuff that's gone on at the cross of Christ was all in relation between us and God and sin, and the damage that sin has created, right? And therefore the healing that Christ's death has brought. But nevertheless, not only in reconciliation has the sin problem been dealt with, but we have become the recipients of all of the blessing of God. Amen? Amen. But in talking about the sufficiency of the atonement, let, let's just consider it. So, so think about what we mean when we say the sufficiency of the atonement, okay? Okay? So whatever it was that God intended to, to do in the atonement when he offered Christ, okay? He, he offered Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, right? 
in the NIV, I think it's Romans 3.24. That's, that's uh, actually translated this way. The, the, the NASB word is propitiation. Propiti. Whoops. Yeah, you had it right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but the, the, the way the NIV translates this one word, right, halisterion, is with these three words, sacrifice of atonement. Sacrifice of atonement. That God himself presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. So I want you to think about this question. Let's turn in our Bible there, Romans 3. Romans 3. So that the passage that we're looking at Yeah, we'll start back here at Romans 3.21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? The righteousness of God. Right? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being what? Justified as a gift. Of course, we've said that being justified is being declared righteous, right? By his grace, through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus, right? Righteousness, justification, redemption, right? Look what it says here. Whom God, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. So look what this Bible is saying here. That God is the one. God put forth Christ as what? As a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement. To bring about his righteousness and his justification and his redemption. That's what the Bible says right here in the black and white. Are you following me? Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, I want you to think about this. Now, if this is what God intended to do, right out of the words of Romans 3, the teaching passage in the New Testament that tells us what's happening in the cross, okay? If this is what God intended to do, What do you suppose happened? Are you with me? And I I don't mean to I don't mean to be cynical or or whatever that that word is. I I don't mean to be sarcastic. I'm dead serious. Mm -hmm. If this is what God intended to do, right out of the words of Scripture in the atonement, I would like to tell you that that is in fact exactly what happened. So then when we talk about the sufficiency of the atonement, we ask this question. Was what God planned to do in his decree from all eternity and brought to pass in the cross of our Lord Jesus, did it affect what God intended to affect with it? That's the same question as saying, is the atonement sufficient to cover sin? Are you with me? So that when we ask the question, is it 
sufficient. What is the answer? Yes. Yes. Okay, now, if that's very reasonable and very logical for you who understand the cross and understand sin and understand what's gone on there, okay, it should be very easy for you to recognize a false gospel when you see it. Mm -hmm. Because let me tell you what a false gospel is always and evermore going to attack. It's going to attack the very doctrine on which the church stands or falls. And that is, is the atonement sufficient to cover my sin? Can I really be justified in the sight of God by the death of Jesus on the cross? Okay? Then that is the central issue in the Christian gospel. That is the central issue in the Christian faith. Period. Because it's through that justification that mankind is reconciled to God. And it's only through our reconciliation to God that we have power over death. Otherwise, we're dead in our sins. And we're going to be shut out from the presence of God forever. That's what the Bible says. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Okay? And so the, the, the point is, is that this is in fact exactly what God intended to do. And so that the atonement is sufficient. So... What happens in religion is, right, man's always trying to put a fig leaf over the shame of his nakedness. Rather than allowing God to put forth a sacrifice of atonement to cover our sin. Are you with me? It's man-made. It's not God's work. You understand? And that's the difference between true religion and false religion. That's the difference between Christianity and every other world religion, including all false forms of Christianity. Are you with me? It's all at stake in this issue of the atonement. Okay? So then, the sufficiency of the atonement, this work then that Christ has done, opens the door for our relationship to God to be restored. Because of this wonderful redemption paid by Christ, God is no longer alienated from us. This is to say that the atonement brings about reconciliation between us and God. By taking away sin, God has removed the ground of alienation between us and him and thereby restored our relationship to him. This work was initiated by God who reconciled us to himself. Okay? Now remember how I was telling you that God put forth Jesus? There in the Romans 3.25, right? God displayed him publicly as a sacrifice of atonement or as a propitiation, right? Well, look what it says in Romans 5, verses 8 through 11, talking about the fact that God is the one who did the atonement, okay? Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You see what those words are saying? It's all about the cross. It's all about the blood of Christ. 
This talks about how we're reconciled to God. It's through the cross. There's no other means. There's no other way. That's why there's no other religion. There, there is no other religion on the face of the world that has Jesus the Christ, the very Son of God, God, very God Himself, dying on a cross as a propitiation for sin. He's the only one. And that's why He's the only way. He's the only sufficient way to deal with the sin problem. Are you with me? Amen. Family, this is the issue when you're evangelizing people and they're asking you all kinds of crazy weird questions about world religions and concepts and ideas that flow out of those. All you've got to do is take them right to the cross and say, no, 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 wait a minute. Jesus had to die. And, it, and if Jesus doesn't die for your sins, you're going to die for your sins. That's what God has said. Because God is infinitely offended by your sin. You deserve hell. But we just take them right to the cross. We take them to the sin problem. Look, it's not about Jesus being a genie in a bottle. That isn't going to save anybody from sin. Yes, Jesus gives peace. He gives joy. He fixes life's problems. Better than anybody else in the world. Right? He's our comfort. He's our light. He's our salvation. He's our very present help in time of trouble. He's our refuge. He's our shield. He's our strength. Amen? He's all those things. But none of those things save us from the wrath of God. Which is the primary problem in salvation. That's what salvation is. Being saved. What does it say? Romans 5 uh, nine. Much more now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. People have to understand, God is so exceedingly angry with sin, he's going to destroy them. He's not just some big grandpappy in the sky. He's only that way for his kids. Everybody else is an enemy. And let me tell you, of all the people in the universe you want to be an enemy of, it's not God Almighty. Amen? Amen? There's a sin problem. You don't deal with the sin problem, you're going to be destroyed. Are you with me? That's the heart of evangelism, family. And those are hard words. It infuriates people. It will get you killed in some places. But you'll only be following the example of our Lord. He was perfect. And so they killed him. Amen? Amen. So when, when Romans speaks about <laughs> these things that God has done, when God demonstrates his love towards us, it says we've been justified, we've been saved, we've been reconciled. Right? These are all terms that describe the sufficiency of the atonement. We have been saved from the wrath. Right? We have been reconciled to God. Our relationship has been mended. These are, these are things that have been accomplished. So then, we see that all these things that have been accomplished by God through Christ in the atonement have reconciled God to us and us to God, and our relationship has been restored. Okay? So when we talk about, <clears throat> when we talk about reconciliation, is that right? Sorry. I'm supposed to know how to spell. <laughs> when we talk about reconciliation, we're talking about the restoring of a relationship. Okay? This word deals with relationship. 
And what the Bible says is that we have been reconciled to God. That's what it says there, Romans 5.10. But how about this in Colossians 1.21 and 22? It says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is what Romans, I'm sorry, Colossians 1.22 says. It says that. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, our relationship to God has been restored. We have been reconciled to God. Now God is not alienated from us. God is not hiding his face from us any longer because of our sin. Remember how I was telling you, we don't tend to look at sin like that. You know, We tend to think we've been alienated from God. And we have been alienated from God. But that's not primary. What is primary is, is that God is alienated from the sinner. Are you with me? And, and this is a, an Old Testament word picture, that God would hide his face. That he would not look upon the sinner. Because the sight of God is equivalent in the Old Testament as the blessing of God. And that's why the, the blessing of the children of Israel from the priest was, right? The Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. Because when God looks upon you, it is as if it is with favor. Amen? Are you with me? And so this is what Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. He's purified us from sin. Right? Listen to these words. Without blemish and free from accusation. Amen? We've been reconciled. Through Jesus' redemptive death upon the cross, we have been fully reconciled to God. This is because Jesus fully met the demands of God's righteousness in the law for our sins, having paid the penalty the law demanded for sins, but also having earned a positive righteousness before God by his perfect obedience to the perceptive requirements of the law. Here's what we're saying. In the law, okay, you have penal sanctions, and you have preceptive requirements. So that the, the, the law would say something like this. If a man commits a specific sin, let's just say adultery. What shall you do? Put him to death. Right? And I don't mean to just pick on that sin. There's a host of sins. Even a rebellious child to his parents is said to be put to death. Okay? But the point is, is that this is a penal sanction of the law. This is a thing where the law is declaring a penalty for a specific sin. So the law has, number one, penal sanctions or penalties. But number two, it has preceptive requirements, precepts. And so when you're reading in the Psalms, like Psalm 119, oh, how I love thy precepts, right? Here's a precept, okay? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The law is requiring us to do something. It's not just requiring us not to do something. Right? It's not just saying don't commit that sin. But it's saying don't omit these other sins. Right? What? Love God. Love neighbor. These are perceptive requirements of the law. So that the law ha has not only penalties, but it has requirements. 
Okay? And here's the problem. We haven't just failed at the penalties. <laughs> we, we've broken all ten commandments. <laughs> right? That's what the Sermon on the Mount shows us. Are you with me? But not only that, we failed. We have failed to do the preceptive requirements of the law. So this is what Jesus' uh, life and death has done. See, now it's not just the offering of Christ on the cross to meet the penal sanctions of the law. It's not just the, 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 uh, the redeeming from the curse of the law, but it's fully meeting the preceptive requirements of the law that Christ has done for us. So that in Christ, right, we have a righteousness of God. So that it's not just a matter of the fact that our sins have been dealt with, but we have the, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Of course, this is called imputation. And we're going to talk about this at length in upcoming lessons, but the point is, is that our sin gets imputed to Christ on the cross and he dies. His righteous life gets imputed to us before God. And we get declared righteous. Not just because the penalties of our sins have been dealt with, but the righteousness of God in Christ is credited to us. This is what the scripture says. And we'll talk about that at length, but uh, here's what John Murray says about this. He says, Christ, as the vicar of his people, came under the curse and condemnation due to sin, and he also fulfilled the law of God in all its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both the penal and the perceptive requirements of God's law. Now I want you to to notice something he said there. He said, perfectly. He perfectly satisfied the demand of God's holy law for sin. And he perfectly met God's requirement for righteousness. So when we ask the question, is, is the life and death of Jesus sufficient to bring about reconciliation between us and God and make us righteous in Him? The answer is yes. And that's why the scripture makes plain statements about this. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. Are you with me? It's sufficient, people. It is sufficient. Therefore, the demands of the law have been fully met in Christ, and this is the ground of our reconciliation to God. In legal terms, the Bible describes us as having been justified before God. Justification is the act of God declaring us righteous now based on the merits of Christ through faith in Him. This means that we have a foreign righteousness that is not our own. Okay? In justification, here's how the Bible describes it. The righteousness that we receive that is in Christ is the righteousness that God requires because of his holy nature. 
Okay? It's not something that we can possibly earn or merit. Okay? It's the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God. The word of typically means from. Okay? So look at these scriptures. Philippians 3, 9, and 10. This is what it says. That I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see how the Bible describes our righteousness? It's Christ's righteousness. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own, but, but, but instead, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You understand? It's Christ's righteousness that gets imputed to us. We possess his righteousness. A righteousness that comes from God. Okay? How about Romans 3? Again, the passage we looked at before. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God. You see, this is what drove Martin Luther nuts. He kept reading this. Righteousness of God. Righteousness of God. Right? And of course, being an attorney and an exceedingly sinful man, right? Just like all of us. He, he would read the law of God and he would say, there's no hope for me. And he was angry with God. He hated God. Right? Because God requires righteousness and holiness of which I am not. Right? And Luther realized his own inability to do that. And so he kept coming across these scriptures. A righteousness of God. A righteousness of God. The righteous shall live by faith. And all of a sudden it started to click. By the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's not my own righteousness. It's the righteousness that God gives by faith. Romans 3. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Amen? For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You see, righteousness is something that God gives to us as a gift. It is impossible to merit it. Why? Because we have failed already at the penalties of the law. And we have omitted the preceptive requirements of the law. Amen? That's why Isaiah, he sees God and he says, Woe is me! I'm ruined! Right? All he can think of is the filthiness that comes out of his mouth. Right? Well, this righteousness of God, family, go away thinking about this. The righteousness that you have before God because of the cross is God's righteousness. It's perfect. It's complete. And I want to tell you what that means for you. It means the atonement is sufficient to cover your sin. I keep trying to, to hammer this home. Okay? God only looks to you with favor if you are in Christ. The sin problem has been completely dealt with. Completely. The atonement of Jesus is sufficient to cover your sin. All of your sin. 
past, present, and future, if you are in Christ Jesus by faith. How will you know that? How will you be assured? Well, obedience would be a good start. But it ain't, it ain't the grounds of justification before God. Christ's obedience is the grounds of justification before God, and we receive that by faith. That's what it says. To all those who believe. The righteousness of God to all those who believe. This is the work of God, to believe on the one he has sent. Amen? So believe and rest. Enter the rest of God. Amen? And then learn how to love him. Then, then do what the law says. Because you're grateful. And because it's beautiful to you. And because you long for the righteousness of God. And you love his law. Because it manifests and displays his character. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, I pray for everyone within the hearing of my voice who holds on to their guilt, God, in a way that displeases you. I pray that you would show them that the death of Christ is sufficient to take away their guilt. And I pray, God, that you would set them free from their guilt. I pray that they would have eyes to see and ears to hear how the scripture has defined our freedom and how we have received your very righteousness, God, so that now we are reconciled and justified through the cross of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. I pray, God, that you would energize our evangelism as we speak to people about Christ and the great need to have a dying Savior. Open our eyes and give us, give us new words, God, to communicate to people the central issue that is at stake in the Christian faith. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd give us great insight and understanding that we might be good ministers of your gospel. Not only this, God, but may the joy and the peace, God, the love that flows from the cross, May it live in our hearts every day. May we truly be the joy of all the earth as you have called us in the scripture. Lord, may we truly experience the power of your presence being reconciled to you now. And strengthen us in our faith, God, to forsake our sins so that we don't live a life that's shameful, but that, God, we, we, we uh, do our good deeds and that men would see it and glorify you because they know that we're a Christian, that we're a follower of Jesus. Strengthen our faith, I pray. Cause us, Lord, to love you more than anything else in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.